All right, welcome everyone to our first night of a new semester. It has been probably about eight weeks since we've had our midweek program. That's longer than we normally have in between semesters. But it's because of the transition moving into the new building. Uh, we needed enough time to get all that together, and we had just enough time to uh, get it all together. But here we are, thank the Lord. So we look forward to a good semester together of 13 uh, weeks together, and uh, 12 of those are going to go through lessons in the book that uh, most of you have. And I'll talk about how that's laid out and the stuff that you need to do in those books in order to get the most out of our class on the book of, of Daniel. Tonight's an introductory night, and when I was in college and in seminary, I always skipped the introductory nights. I skipped a lot of other classes, too, but uh, the introductory nights were just kind of filling you in on stuff that if you've been at uh, previous semesters, you knew a good bit about. So for those of you that have and for whom some of what I say at the beginning is repeat, then uh, just indulge me. Don't snore too loudly as I go, go through it. But I do want to tell you how this class fits into the overall scheme of what we try to do in what we call Community Institute. Our Wednesday adult program is called that. It's called Community Institute. And it is uh, our version of a Bible Institute, but, and it has a, a structure to it. If you've taken our newcomer's orientation, then you get a chart in that uh, class that shows you uh, how we've laid out the entire ministry uh, in various categories to accomplish the three objectives we believe God has given to the church, to learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. And so on that chart then, all the ministries that we have fit under one or overlap with one or more of those three things, learn, love, and live. Well, this is Community Institute, so it's obviously uh, under the learn category. And then we show on that chart that we have some core classes that we encourage everybody to, to take. And those core classes take four years to, to get through. Some of you have been through all of that or most of that. Some of you have been through none of that. And so that's why I wanted to, to let you know about it. So we have four years of core classes. Uh, and those take place, as, as I say, in Community Institute on Wednesday night. And they will start up again in the fall. So if you have not been through them, if you've been partway through, that will start back up again this fall. So you don't have to worry that uh, you've, you've missed it or you won't be able to, to take it again. And the, the four core, core classes are one that I teach that takes two semesters, one calendar year called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. So we try to start there giving folks an overview of how the Bible is put together and how you interpret the Bible and how you apply the Bible. And so it's survey of Scripture, understanding Scripture, and applying Scripture. We cover those three things in that class. We'll be doing that again in the, in the fall. So if you've never taken that, you'll be, you'll be in that. And then after you finish with that, you go into two years of, uh, it's, our, it's a Baptist version of purgatory, uh, because it's two years with Pastor Matt in, in, <laughs> in something called the Discovery Series. And it goes through four books. It's published material called the Discovery Series. And each of those books has 12 lessons. So each one of them takes a semester, four semesters, two calendar years. And those four books, book one is on discovering the Christian life. Book two, discovering intimacy with God. Book three, discovering your role in God's family. And then book four is discovering how to share your faith. And then the fourth and final year is something called Master Plan for Life. 
That takes two semesters, and we call it a systematic theology for regular people. And so by the time you get done with that in those four years, you've got a good grounding in the Bible, how it's put together, how to fumble around in it, what its major themes are, and then uh, what its major teachings are, both at a more elementary level and then a little more advanced in the uh, systematic theology class. Well, then what happens after that? Well, then we have uh, just ongoing education for those that have completed that. We often have uh, professors from Detroit Baptist Seminary that we're blessed to have just almost in our backyard, and they teach through various books of the Bible or various uh, topics, and uh, we will have one of them uh, in the fall as well for those of you that have completed that. So why don't we have one of them now? Why aren't we doing How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible Now or the Discovery Series Now or Master Plan for Life? Here's why. Uh, this particular year, these two semesters, we've taken a, a break from that, and the, the reason is twofold. One, uh, just two doors down from us, a bunch of guys are taking men's fraternity. That's why this class, if you look around a little bit, is pretty much women's fraternity. Forgive me the handful of guys that we, <laughs> that we have in here. But that's because we've got a bunch of men taking men's fraternity. And in order, we, we thought that this class for men was important enough for us to offer it on Wednesday nights. We offer off, also offer it on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. But that has meant that a bunch of our guys are in there and therefore not available to take, to take these classes. The other thing was last semester I did a, uh, a marriage class. And we, I felt from a pastoral standpoint, that our church really needed, really needed a marriage class. And actually, I think that there were some marriages that were saved as a result of that. I, re I really do. Uh, not, I didn't teach it. That's probably why. <laughs> it was a DVD-based thing, and then I just sort of led that. But Paul Tripp, who did the lectures on the DVD, did an excellent job with that. And uh, some of our marriages have been strengthened for sure as a result of that. So because of that... This year is different than the norm that I laid out for you with those four core classes and then uh, professors from the seminary teaching other classes. We'll get back to that in the fall. And so this semester I decided to go through the, uh, the book of Daniel using the workbooks that uh, you all have in front of you. And so we will spend uh, the next 13 weeks going over 12 lessons in that, in that book. Before we get into the book of Daniel then I want to lay out some principles that apply to any book of the Bible that you're going to study. And so if you've got uh, in the front, you've got a couple of blank pages. If you want to take notes there, if you've got a piece of paper, if you don't care, then just uh, act like you're listening. But the overall principle that, that needs to be applied Every time you're studying a book of the Bible, whatever it is, whatever part of the Bible it is, is this. That context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. And that is true in any communication. It's true in the communication I'm giving you right now. Uh, that the context in which I say what I say determines, determines meaning. So when I said earlier, in Pastor Matt's absence, what I'm going to repeat now in Pastor Matt's presence, which is when you take the two years of the Discovery Series, that's sort of a, I said a Baptist church version, Bible church version of purgatory. 
we all laugh. We all laugh. Nobody amen. There you go. That's all good. That's very good. And we all laugh and nobody amens because we know I'm kidding. And we know I'm kidding because of context. The context includes relationship. The context includes the, the real seriousness of the subject matter about which we're talking. And so no one could come away and accurately say, Pastor Ken communicated to us that Pastor Matt's class is, is a waste of time. Now you could say, he said, it's purgatory to be in there. You could say that, and that would be technically accurate, but it would not communicate what I meant, would it? Because context determines meaning. And so that is true in any communication, and it's true in the Bible as well. It's true in interpreting the Constitution. Some judges still remember that. Context determines meaning. And so that being the case, you have to place every communication then in its context. And how do you do that? Well, there's three major categories of placing any communication in context. First is historical. There is every communication has an historical context. So as you are reading or listening to any communication, that communication has an historical context. Now, you don't think about that very much. The, the fact that you're placing stuff in context as you read and listen to it. You don't think about it very much because most of the messages that you receive, you do that automatically. You automatically place what you read and what you hear in context. And so in terms of placing it in historical context, if you're listening to someone who's a contemporary of yours, or you're reading someone who's a contemporary of yours, putting it in historical context isn't very difficult, is it? And so you do this interpretive thing, and placing the messages you receive in, in context automatically because most of the messages you process every day have two things uh, in common, that they are contemporary and they're local. Contemporary, they're happening right now. Local, they're happening right here. And if what you're reading and what you're hearing is happening both now and here, here and now, then you can automatically place it in context. You don't have to do a lot of work. You can, you can unconsciously do that. You know what the references are. You get most of the jokes, so on, right? So you automatically do that. And... and the reason I belabor that is because you're not doing then anything different when you come to the Bible that you do all the time. You're just having to think about it. Because it's not contemporary and it's not local. So you have to now think about doing what you don't have to think about doing when you receive regular communication every day. You have to think about the time in which it was written. It's not contemporary. You think, have to think about the place to which it was written. It's not uh, here. And so, as we look at Daniel, you're gonna have to, we're going to have to place Daniel in Daniel's historical context. We're going to see that the events of the book of Daniel that the, and the book of Daniel itself was written in the 6th century B.C. Well, what was going on in the 6th century B.C. that compelled Daniel to put pen to paper and write this, this book. Well, we'll see what that is. 
because context determines meaning, we have to place it in its historical context, and that includes time, it also includes place. And, and what's the place? Well, the place is Babylon. And we'll see how Babylon fits into the context, and thus the meaning, of what Daniel wrote for us. So context determines meaning. That means you have to place it in its historical context. We have to think about that as we look at an ancient document like the Bible. But you do it all the time. You just don't have to think about it. You also have to place it not just in its historical context, but secondly, in its grammatical context. Grammatical context. And placing a message in its grammatical context means, means this. It means that and all I've got is blue chalk. <laughs> so we, we do all this work trying to get this thing ready. And I'm thinking, we got chalkboards. We clean the chalkboards. That, that was not there when I walked in. But anyway, we clean these chalkboards somewhat. I had yellow. But no. Yeah. Well, we'll see, what that, we'll see how this goes. Okay. But uh, placing a message in its grammatical context means that you start with uh, the smallest unit of communication, which is a word. But a word uh, doesn't mean anything standing alone. You say, wait a minute. You can give me a word, and I can look it up in the dictionary and find out what it means. No, you, re you really sort of can't, can you? Because the dictionary is almost without exception going to give you more than one possible meaning. And what's going to determine which of those two, three, or five meanings, possible meanings, is the one you just heard. It's going to be how that word was used in the sentence. And so you start with a word, but the wor words don't just stand alone. Words are used in sentences. That's like doing that. I like the way that chalk sound <laughs> you hit. It sounds so authoritative. <laughs> so words are used in sentences, and that's what places the word in context. But then, again, sentences are not normally left by themselves. They're certainly, certainly not in the Bible. And so what does that sentence mean? Well, that sentence has to be placed in a larger grammatical context, which is a paragraph. And so, the next unit of you know, grammar is paragraph. And if you, you know, can just wake up long enough to remember what it was like in English class and what a paragraph is supposed to function to do, it's supposed to contain a unit of thought. Uh, now, most of us just write and just keep going and you know, if I've been going too long, so I should probably end down. <laughs> but it's really supposed to have some logical structure to it, right? And that's the way, that's the, way the Bible is, uh, too. And, in fact, that is why it's a really good idea to have a translation of the Bible that is laid out in paragraphs. And this is why we recommend uh, the NIV, the New International Version. That's one of the reasons, is because it's laid out in paragraphs. And so you take a paragraph now, and that paragraph contains a unit of thought that contributes to something larger. And that is, what is this book, this overall book about? In our case, the book of Daniel. 
that paragraph is contributing a unit of thought to the overall structure of that book and why that book was written. And I've almost run out of space there. I only got one more circle. And that book, you know, most most books are you stop here. But because the Bible is a collection of books, 66 books that were written over a 1,600-year period. And the last of those books was written 2,000 years ago. So because that's the case for the Bible, it doesn't stop with the book. Context does not stop with the book. But rather, the largest context is the Bible itself. And how the message of this book fits into the message of the overall Bible. And we're going to see, maybe before we go tonight, we're going to see that themes in the book of Daniel are found elsewhere in Scripture. Like in the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. So as we embark on studying any book, but including the book of Daniel, context determines meaning. And context has history, historical context, time and place. It's not contemporary, it's not local. It's not now, it's not here. It has grammatical context, and then it has a third kind of context, and that is literary context. That is literary context. What do we mean by that? Well, there are different, there are 66 books in the Bible, and there are different kinds of books among those 66. And I am here to tell you that most people who have been in church their whole life don't differentiate at all between different kinds of books in the Bible. The Bible is just one big Poor Richard's Almanac. A stitch in time saves nine. A penny saved is a penny earned. You're just looking for little moral nuggets everywhere you can find it. And rather than doing this putting in historical, grammatical, and taking into account what kind of book am I dealing with? What literary type is it? So what kinds of different literature are there in the Bible? Well, you've got parables. Jesus often spoke in parables. Well, a parable is a particular kind of literature. And parables have a point. They usually have one major point. And the details are all incidental to that major point. And if you don't get that, then you'll be looking for meaning in all of these incidental details. And you'll be preaching sermons, teaching lessons, getting wrong ideas about what Jesus is communicating in these parables. So there's, there's parables. There are, there are letters. So much of your New Testament is letters. Letters that... Peter and John and Paul wrote to people or churches. And a letter is easiest for us because it's most like the kind of communication that, that we do. So you got parables, you, you got letters, you got prophecy. And prophecy is often predicting stuff that's going to happen in the future. And a lot of times it is it's what's called apocalyptic literature. And it has a bunch of symbolism in it. If you've ever waded through the book of Revelation, 
That's apocalyptic prophecy. And it has all these symbols in it. Lamp stands, you know, and bowls, and these all stand for, and, and horns, and all kinds of things, right? So that's a particular type of literature. You've got Proverbs. Proverbs are a particular kind of literature. You have Proverbs in, contained within certain books of the Bible, and you've got a whole book of the Bible called Proverbs. And that has to be interpreted like a proverb. And one of the features of Proverbs are that they are generally true. But they're not legal guarantees. And so, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. It's generally true. It's not a legal guarantee. And it wasn't intended to be a legal guarantee. And if a godly set of parents has a wayward child, that doesn't mean the Bible was wrong. <clears throat> because Proverbs are generally true, not absolutely true, by their very nature. Psalms are poetry, and they have to be interpreted as poetry. So a psalmist can say, the hills dance before the Lord, but that's... So, with all of that, and I'm going to give you another type, which is what Daniel is. But with all of that I've said so far, then would it be accurate to say that we interpret the Bible literally? Well, not really. Because there are portions of the Bible that aren't intended to be literal. Poetry, by its very nature, is not literal. Right? So we, I prefer to say we interpret the Bible normally. We interpret according to the normal rules of communication. And that takes into account, is this poetry? Is it a proverb? Is it law? Is it a letter? Is it a parable? So on. Two-thirds of your Bible, two-thirds, is another type of literature. And that is narrative. Narrative. And it is so named because it is narrating the story of what happened to other people. And that's most of your Bible, two-thirds of it. Is narrating what happened to other people. And Daniel is narrative. It's going to talk about what happened to Daniel. When he was taken as a teenager into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And it's going to talk about what happened to Daniel's three friends as the same thing happened to them. So it's, and, and God's people in general, as they were taken into Babylonian captivity. So that's narrating, telling the story of what happened to some other people. Daniel also contains prophecy, predictive stuff as well. And he's got some of the symbolism that goes with it, as we'll see. So for Daniel, you could call it narrative prophecy. It's got both of those. Now here's the thing about narrative. That uh, narrative uh, does not, because it's telling the story, narrating what happened to other people, it does not prescribe actions for us. It describes the actions of others. Because it's narrating the story of what happened to other people, it's not looking to prescribe stuff for you to do immediately. It's looking to describe 
what happened in telling the story regarding those people. So, two-thirds is narrative. Book of Acts in your New Testament. I mean, the full title of the book, we just call it Acts because we're lazy. But it's really the, the Acts of the Apostles. It's the, the Acts, the actions, the activities of the Apostles. So we call it Acts. Well, what's that doing then? It's narrating what happened to those guys. You know, so in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, it says Peter and John went to the temple. Now that's narrating what happened with Peter and John. You've never been to the temple. Because Acts 3 is not prescribing for you to go to the temple. It's describing the fact that they went to the temple. Well, how important is this? Well, if you're a Pentecostal, not very. If you're a Pentecostal, my apologies. But really, um, that's, this is the fatal thing that our Pentecostal friends neglect. That the Bible contains lots of stuff that happened with other people that it's not prescribing to happen with you. And the apostles were able to do lots of stuff you can't do. And lots of stuff I can't do. I mean, Jesus, Jesus said, that they would be able to lay hands on the dead and they would recover. And so sure enough, in the actions of the apostles, you have Peter telling a teenage girl who had died to arise. Now your favorite TV evangelist has never done that. He can fake all kinds of other healings, but if he really wants to get the goods, do that. But he can't. And the reason he can't is because he's not an apostle. And the Bible never told him to. And the Bible's not telling you to. And so, lots of well-meaning Christian people think that everything that's described in the Bible is somehow prescribing what we're supposed to do. And narrative is not prescribing actions for you. It's describing the actions of other people. Two-thirds of your Bible that way. And so you get into the Old Testament. First part of your Bible, which Daniel's a part. And you've got all sorts of narration of what happened. And the Israelites were taken captive in slavery into Egypt. And then they came out of bondage and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. This is all narrative, right? So then how, if it's narrative and it's just describing what happened to these people, why do I bother with it? How does it help me? 2 Timothy 3.16 in your Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is useful. And then says what it's useful for. For teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. All scripture is useful. All scripture. Including Daniel. Including the books of, the first five books that describe Egypt and bondage and wilderness wandering and all of that. So it's all useful. The question for us is then, how is it, how is it useful? And here's how. Even though two-thirds of your Bible is narrative, and narrative is describing the, what happened to other people in different times and different places in the case of the Bible, in distant places and long ago, even though that's all true, the Bible in those, in those narrative sections is giving us this, this one line that some of you have heard me use before. People 
in situations in the presence of God. People in situations in the presence of God. All that narrative stuff is that. People, situations, and God. Now, of those three elements, people in situations in the presence of God, one of them varies from them to you. Namely, the situation. You're not in captivity in Babylon. So the situations vary, but the other two elements, and this is extremely important, people and God remain the same. So how is it then that these narrative portions describing what happened to other people in distant places and long ago, how is that useful for you and me? Here's how. Because it's talking about people who haven't changed. And it's talking about God who hasn't changed. And in every one of those stories about what happened in that situation with those people, you learn something about yourself. And you learn something about God. People, God. Situations vary. And that is why it is helpful then to use when you're interpreting the Bible... Context determines meaning, historical, grammatical, literary. And when you're doing all of that, is you now want to apply, what does this mean to me? How does the book of Daniel help me and apply to me? It's helpful to use something called the uh, fallen condition focus. The fallen condition focus. What is that? It is something that another guy that I read made up but it's pretty helpful. And this other guy that I read is a guy named Brian Chappell. And Brian Chappell has written a number of books, but one of them is called Christ-Centered Preaching. And the best chapter in that whole book is called The Fallen Condition Focus. And I'll explain it in a second. Brian Chappell has written a bunch of other helpful books. One called Praying Backwards. And I used that in a series that I did on prayer some time ago. He's got another book called Holiness by Grace. That's very helpful. And men, Brian Chappell is going to be in Livonia May 3rd and 4th. And we've had we've been advertising that in our bulletin uh, on a Friday night and a Saturday. And if you can make it, I encourage you to go because he is, he is an outstanding preacher of the word. But he wrote this book, Christ-Centered Preaching, and then he's got this chapter called The Fallen Condition Focus. And here's what he means by that. That every passage in the Bible, in some way, addresses some aspect of the fallen condition. In fact, that's the whole reason it's there. And that's how it, how it becomes useful for you. Because you're fallen. I'm fallen. We're sinful. And the Bible is full of all of these passages that address different aspects of the fallen condition. Now think about the, what we mean when we say the fallen condition. The most obvious thing we mean by that is that we sin. That's part of the fallen condition. We sin. And certainly large portions of scripture address the fact that we sin. So that's part of the fallen condition. The kinds of sins we commit, the consequences that go with those, those sins, warnings not to do those things, all of that stuff, right? That's a big part of the fallen condition. But what else is part of the fallen condition? 
Well, not just things we do, but things that are done to us. Right? That's part of the fallen condition. So you got large passages of the Bible that deal with things that have happened to otherwise sanctified people, people that are walking with God. And so God's people have bad things happen to them. Job had bad things happen to him. The Bible says in all of this, Job did not sin. Contrary to the health, wealth, and prosperity people. You know what I mean? That's, that's your average televangelist who says God wants you rich and healthy. If you'll just, you'll be rich and healthy if you'll just. And here's Job. And he was rich. And then he wasn't. Well, how'd that happen? Why'd that happen? And the Bible tries to give you a hint <laughs> that it wasn't because of what Job did. In all of this, Job did not sin. Job was blameless, the Bible says. But if you're a televangelist and you're a health, wealth, prosperity person, you've got to find something in Job's life. You know you have missed the boat. When you're preaching and teaching is the same as the worthless advice of Job's three friends, which is precisely what the health, wealth, prosperity people so it's, the fallen condition includes stuff we do, but it also includes stuff that's done. Things that people do and things that just happen because you live in a fallen world and you get hit with the shrapnel of the, of the war that's taking place in, in a fallen world. So the fallen, in the fallen condition includes all of them, the consequences of living in a fallen world. Sickness, death, and war, and poverty, and you find all of that stuff. So every passage of the Bible is addressing some aspect of the fallen condition. And so if you will focus on what this passage is teaching about the fallen condition, our attitudes, our words, our actions, the attitudes, words, and actions of others, the things that are the consequences of those attitudes, words, and actions. The things that happen because we live in a sin-cursed world. If you will focus, fallen, if you'll focus on that, then you'll see that God is addressing one or more aspects of that in all these passages. And then you do this. You look for how God's grace addresses that thing. You look for the fallen condition focus. What's this passage saying about the fallen condition? And then you ask yourself, how does God's grace address that aspect of the fallen condition? And one of the things that you'll find is that, lo and behold, God's grace addresses all aspects of the fallen condition. All aspects of the fallen condition. And guess in whom that happens? In Jesus. And so, by that, you find everything pointing to Jesus. Even stuff like Daniel. Even stuff in the first part of your Bible. So ask yourself, as I was telling our Chinese brothers and sisters back in December, as I was teaching them how to interpret the Bible, and I said, ask yourself in these narrative portions of the Bible, ask yourself what it teaches about God, and what does it teach about us? If, you, if you'll just do that, you'll be light years ahead of everybody else. Just what's the saying about God? 
and his character. What's it saying about us? What we're like? And in that way, all scripture, including the narrative portions that describe what happened to other people, will be useful for us. All right, with that, why? Okay, we're doing Daniel. Why this? Why, um, if you look on the back, down at the bottom, it says Community Bible Study. Because I thought that was a cool name. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I was first introduced to this organization, Community Bible Study. Um, years ago, I was reading an article in a news magazine about George W. Bush, then governor of Texas, George W. Bush. And the fact that he had had an evangelical born-again experience of some sort. And I was very interested in uh, some of you know his his bio, but that he was an alcoholic and he was and uh, was a drunk. You know, they, so no offense to Alcoholics Anonymous. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. So I'm not debating that. So he is an alcoholic, but he's no longer drinking. And uh, he gave up drinking like, overnight, cold turkey. And and what explains that? Well, he has this he has this born again experience, according to his own testimony. Well, how did, what precipitated that? A friend who was concerned about him, who had been attending a Bible study, invited him to come back in Texas. And they mentioned in this news magazine article that it was a community Bible study. And I thought, I'd like, I'd like to know what that is. And so I looked it up and I filed it away. Um, and that was actually before we started Community Baptist, now Community Bible Church. So I think that in God's providence, they just named it that for us, so that we can use their stuff, and it looks like our stuff. You know? So really, that's how I came in contact with it. And uh, this is, and then honestly, this is a 12-week series, and it fits our semester as well. So going through the book of Daniel, I think it would be interesting and helpful for us, but it also fits into our, our time frame. Now, take a look at the outline that's in the uh, book, first couple of pages. And you'll see there are 12 lessons. The first one is fairly quick. We're going to look at it in our remaining time. But then the entire 12 chapters of the book are covered in these, in these 12 lessons. And the book of Daniel and some of its episodes are familiar to, to some of you. You know that Daniel had these, free, these three friends that we call the three Hebrew children. And uh, they, as teenagers, were taken into captivity into Babylon, so we're going to see what happened to them. Lesson three, the dream and its interpretation. Many of you are familiar with this image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, saw, and that, that Daniel not only interpreted, Daniel told him what the dream was, because he had forgotten the dream. You'll remember that. And uh, then uh, the handwriting on the wall, lesson six, Belshazzar, and that's where we get that phrase, you know, you saw the handwriting on the wall, well that's from the book of Daniel, because he saw that and that his time was at hand, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel's prayer and the 70 weeks, lesson 10. So a, a number of things that some of you know about, if you don't know about them, you'll become familiar with them and how, how they're significant. 
Now, with regard to the 70 weeks, what is that referring to? We'll see it when we get to Lesson 10, but I just want to briefly show you this piece of how the book of Daniel fits into the overall Bible. So if you have your Bible, take a look at Daniel chapter 9. If not, just listen up. In verse 24, Daniel 9, 24, 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to do six things. To finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy. Now, all that's going to happen, says verse 24, in a period of 70 sevens. Now, when we get to Lesson 10, we'll see what that is and, and why. But for now, you just have to take my word for this. That that is 70 periods of seven years. If you do the math, that's 490 years. And then verse 25 and following goes on to describe now those 490 years. And it breaks them up into 62 sevens and 7 sevens. So 62 and 7, 69. And what follows in verse 25 and following is an account of what's going to happen in 69 of those 70 weeks or 483 of those 490 years. And then you get down to verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So we've got 483, and then we've got one left. For one period of seven years. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Yikes. But anyway. <laughs> We'll see. So, 490 years, 483 of them spoken of here. We got this one period of seven years kind of hanging out there. And in verse 27, it says in the middle of that one period of seven years, something really bad is going to happen. Now, some of you know that, that story. You know who that guy is. And you know what he does and all of that. So we'll see that in lesson 10 together. But now, for now, just turn to uh, Revelation, last book of your Bible. Revelation chapter 11. And remember, there's this one period of seven years hanging out there. And it's part of the 490 years that are going to accomplish all this stuff. And in the middle of this final seven-year period, this desolation is going to occur. This abomination is going to happen. And you get to the last book of your Bible, written hundreds of years later. And notice what you, notice what you have. In verse number 2, middle of verse 2, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now that is half of seven years. And remember Daniel 9.27 said, in the middle of that seven-year period, in the midst of that, but then 
John, who wrote Revelation, goes on. Verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days. So this same three and a half year period is referred to both in terms of months and in terms of days. So it would be very important indeed. Look at chapter 12 and verse 6. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for... 1260 days. And then lastly in chapter 13 and verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. So, Daniel has given you a sweep of history. All these six things that sum up history are going to be accomplished in these 490 years, 483 of them accounted for, and then you got this, this one last period of seven years that's going to be divided in half. In the middle of that, this abomination that causes desolation is going to occur, and the book of Revelation refers all the way back to that. 1260 days, 42 months, a seven-year period that Jesus called a time of trouble such has not been seen on the earth. Divided into two sections of three and a half years. So we'll see that when we get to, to Lesson 10. Now if you look at page 11 then, in your book. Yeah. Page 11, Lesson 1. Lesson 1, as you see, is titled, Don't Panic, God Still, Still Reigns. And if you were to read that uh, first, uh, that first paragraph, it says that uh, it asks the question of whether or not God is busy taking care of cosmic issues going on in the universe, or is He someone who is intimately involved in the issues of our lives? And the Book of Daniel uh, describes both of those: whether God is at work in keeping his universe together, or whether or not God is intimately involved in the details of our lives? And the answer to that is both. And that's what that first paragraph says. God is both of those. Is God approachable, personal, intimately involved? Or is he beyond our galaxy, wrapped up in the cosmic control center of the universe? Now there's two, um, uh, two words, two fancy words that describe those two things. God being intimately involved in our lives and God being at the control center of the universe. Here's the two fancy words. God is transcendent. God's transcendence means he's, he's beyond his world and he's outside of his world. And then the second fancy term is eminent. God is both transcendent, but if he's only that, then how do we have a relationship with him? But the true and living God, and the God revealed in the Bible, is not only transcendent, God is eminent as, as well. And so in the book of Daniel, you're going to see that. God talks about the empires, starting with the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and he's in control of all of that. But he also cares about this teenage boy who's been carted away in captivity and he cares about the details of our lives 
He's transcendent, and he's also eminent. Now, you and I need to keep that in mind about the true and living God. He is both of those. And if you mess that up on either side, you will have a skewed view of God. And people do it all the time. Can you think of people who think of God only in terms of he's eminent, he's my buddy, he's my best friend? Now, the Bible teaches that about our God. He does have that kind of intimate relationship with us, Abba, Father, right? But he is the God of the universe. He is the king of the universe. He is not like us. He is beyond us. But if you only think of God as that, then you live in fear of God all the time. You cower in his presence all the time. And the Bible does not teach that about him either. He is both transcendent and he is eminent, both. I uh, have a, a friend. We're less friends. We're not as good of friends as we used to be for reasons that will perhaps become apparent. Uh, he is a music guy. He is an expert musicologist. He's written some books. I actually reviewed one of his books on music in the Seminary Journal. So he's a friend of mine. I'm reviewing his book, and I'm being critical of his book. Why am I being critical? Here's why. Because he, he believes that when we sing praise to God, we are always singing praise to God's transcendence. And there's certainly that aspect of who God is. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. You know, great is thy faithfulness, and so on. God's majesty, God's transcendence, it's all good. It's all biblical. But the same God is the God who has come to earth and become like us. And is eminent as well. And he believes that hymns that speak of testimony, what God has done for us, ought have no place in our corporate expressions. He's wrong about this. How do I know this? Because the Bible says he's wrong. And I said that in a review article. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, it says that we are to uh, teach and admonish one another as you sing. To who? To in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but notice, to who? To one another. So the idea that you're exclusively singing to God of his transcendence is, is actually violated by scripture itself. If you get this wrong, transcendence and eminence, you will have a skewed view of God. He is both of those. And then notice the things that the book of Daniel is going to teach us. See the bullet points at the bottom of page 11? In the book of Daniel together, we're going to see that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms and history, past, present, and future. So God is sovereign. That is, God's in control of everything that happens, good, bad, and ugly, come what may. We're going to see that in the book of Daniel. Now, I remind you, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings in our Discovering God Hour, 11 o'clock hour, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about the fact that God's sovereign will does not mean that everything that happens is good. So we don't, we don't say it was God's will, therefore it's good that it happened. God is in control. God is sovereign of everything that happens, and that includes the bad things that happen. And we'll see that in the book of Daniel. 
And then God is establishing a kingdom, we'll see, that will never pass away. Now, he's establishing a kingdom. The Bible teaches at the end of human history, it will end with a kingdom, with Jesus on the throne. And with those that have come to Jesus as the inhabitants of that kingdom. Now that kingdom is being built in this way. By having more and more people become citizens of that kingdom. The kingdom itself will, is in the future. But right now, God is increasing the number of inhabitants of that future kingdom. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Here's what it says. Colossians 1.13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we came to God through Jesus... He brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So if you have come to God through Christ, you are a member of this kingdom, and in the future that kingdom will be established, and you will be a part of it. We will see in the book of Daniel that God enables His people to live godly lives in ungodly environments. So, my fellow Americans, living in an ungodly culture, we need to see in the life of Daniel, in the life of his three friends, principles that will help us live godly lives in an ungodly culture. We live in an ungodly culture. When the Super Bowl halftime show is pretty much pornographic. And this is the fair that we all enjoy. Then you know we live in an ungodly culture. That's just one aspect. Right? And when Christian people get sucked into it, because we become desensitized to it, we need to be reminded what it's like to be in the world but not of the world. And Daniel helps teach us that, those lessons. We'll see that God empowers his people to make a positive influence in their culture. So it's not just curse the darkness, so preacher type. Don't just say we live in an ungodly culture. But Jesus says to be salt and light, Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 through 16. And so Daniel shows us how to do that as well. That God humbles the proud and lifts up the humble, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That a spiritual battle lies behind every physical battle. Prayer is our resource in the midst of conflict and, and trouble. If you look at the next page, you're given a brief historical background on the book of Daniel. I encourage you to read that. But the historical background is very simply that Daniel, thus the name of the book, and thus the one who wrote it, has been taken into captivity in Babylon, and it narrates what happened to him. Now behind that, and I'll end with this, behind that historical background is that, uh, is that Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, have disobeyed God. And as a result of their disobeying God, they are now taken captive in battle. So the reason they are in captivity is because they have sinned against God. And behind that, as we'll see next week, 
is a set of promises that God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 28, fifth book of your Bible, where he says, if you do these things, blessings will follow. If you fail to do these things, curses will follow. And that's what happened to them. And as a result, they did the crime, and now for 70 years they're doing the time. That's what the book of Daniel is is centered on. That's the historical background. Now, what do you need to do for next week? In preparation for lesson two, there is homework. If you look at whatever page it is, 17, memorize God's Word. So there's three verses there for you to, to memorize. We won't go over them, but if you want to get the most out of it, then I encourage you to do that. So this will give you the discipline of having something to do and in the Bible, every day, look up some passages, answer some questions, and then when we come together next week, you'll get the most out of what we talk about together. Okay? Everybody good? All right. I hope to uh, see you next week. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we go. Father, we thank you for your word and the fact that it is applicable to us and useful for us today, as much as it was when it was first written. But Lord, we have to use it as intended. Help us to faithfully do that as we place in context what you have said. And help us to draw lessons out of the narration of what happened to Daniel, what happened to his friends, what happened to your people in Babylon. Help us to draw lessons for ourselves because we are like they. And because you have never changed. Help us to see you in all your majesty. Help us to see you in all your mercy. And help us to see ourselves in our struggle with sin living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Lord, go with us this week as we seek to look into your word and answer the questions so that we will profit most. And we ask you to grant us safety until we gather again. In the name of Jesus, amen.